Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. Today's guest is Elliot Cowan, director of the stressful adventures of Boxhead and Roundhead. So welcome to another Squiggly Podcast. Joining me, of course, is Steve Henderson. How are you doing, Steve? I'm fine. Ben, how are you? I'm in danger of being blown away uh, i don't know what it's like elsewhere but today uh, the date of recording it there's a f-ing tsunami in my front <laughs> yard so if you hear like you know thunder and lightning and rainstorms and stuff in the background i haven't added it in post for ambiance that's actually um, it's not the halloween episode no no well the audience are going to be blown away by this podcast ben oh sorry i just figured that we'd started the last two with a bit of a crap pun i just you know we might as well why not? Eh? Why More not? tradition, the merrier. Yeah. So, what have you been up to in the uh, in the handful of weeks since our last episode? I've it's been quite busy for me re- recently. Animation stuff, perchance. Animation stuff, absolutely. Do I know this guy or what? <laughs> huh? How did you know? Uh, yeah, I, I've seen Anomalisa. I know people. It's not released in the UK until March, so I'm not going to go into it uh, in too much depth because I'd rather have a conversation with you about it and. You know, have a real exchange of uh, thoughts. But, uh, yeah, if I was going to give one word, I'd say it was brilliant. That does seem to be the uh, the general consensus. Mm. It well-deserved as well. I mean, I don't want to go on about it too much, like I've said, but the uh, film offers something that other animated feature films have never offered. Any full frontal? Uh, yes. Ah, yeah. well, there you go. Absolutely. I'm not even joking. But we got, uh, we got a bit of... Because Team America, of course... But that wasn't really animation, that was uh, puppets. Oh, Ben. Sorry. Ben, Ben, Ben. We're going to be talking about Team America when you've seen Anomalisa. Ah, I see. Okay. Yeah. Le- let's leave the tease there. I've not signed an NDA or anything like that, but I think we'll we'll leave it to the, the UK press team to... I'm not going to say too much about the film, but it is, it's amazing. I can see why, uh, why it's uh, very legitimately been nominated for the Academy Award. Like we said in the last podcast, the kind of lineup for the Academy Awards this this time is it's a lot more mature, but particularly in the uh, feature variety. So I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing what the result of that is. I mean, if there's anything like the Annie Awards, it might be quite predictable. Not particularly surprising results there. But I was going through the overall list, and it was nice to see a few others kind of uh, getting a nod. Mm. You know, uh, Hertzfeld, of course, and. Um, I saw the Simpsons won something, which the Simpsons do all right in that in that respect. Yeah. You know, the, 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 in, in the Annies, the Simpsons generally walk away with that. I, I believe I'm right in saying that. Mm. You know, but it's up against you know BoJack, Moonbeam City, um, Bob's Burgers. Mm. I don't know really if, if the Simpsons the top of that pile. Sure, why not? Well, some other nice. Uh, well, Bob's Burgers got a few nods themselves. Uh, that's a show mm. that I've. I've I don't know if you've ever really sort of gotten into that one. I certainly tried a few times over the years. I love everyone in it. It's sort of a bit like with that show we were talking about last uh, last episode. F is for family. Yeah, because if I'm a huge fan of the main character in it, I'll give it way more sort of time, I suppose. Whereas, you know, something like Brickleberry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> he does good work, but uh, I'm I'm not his audience anyway, so... That was pretty much an instant channel change. Well, I, I'm a massive Richard Ayoade fan, but as soon as I turned mm. full English on... Where did Bob's burgers get? Oh, the uh, the girl in it 
Kristen Schaal. She won something. She's someone who uh, has surprisingly, because I always figured she would become popular as a stand-up. I remain a big fan of hers. I've been watching this show, um, sort of background watching, because I have like young people in my life now. Uh, it's weird dating sort of someone who's younger than you. You suddenly sort of have a whole bunch of young friends hanging around the place. And they teach you all about what the kids are into nowadays. <laughs> uh, but one I do, actually, I can quite happily just sort of have on is uh, this Gravity Falls show, mm. which I guess is nearly done to the dismay of huge swathes of animation fans. I guess the guy sort of figured there was only one story he wanted to tell with it. And it definitely sort of caters to, I think, the need to have a kind of mythology in a show now. Hmm. which I don't think was as important when when I was a kid growing up. Like, stuff like Steven Universe is another one. Stuff like with, you know, weird, fantastical backstories and parallel universes and yeah, yeah. all this sort of level of mystery. But with Gravity Falls, that's kind of an afterthought. And really, it's just kind of funny. Yeah. It's just kind of a funny show and doesn't seem very Disney at all. You know, it's it's one of the shows, alongside Bob's Burgers, which you've just been talking about, are the two shows on my list that I've got to watch because they're the two shows that everybody tells me to watch. It's right there on the list, you know, and I've I've got to um I've got to get in, in indulged in there. But the idea of people exploring this this past and 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 going for the extra level in 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 most things. Have you? I mean, are, are you on Reddit, Ben? Do you ever go on Reddit? Uh, what's that? Uh, what was that thing my old nan used to say? F***s to the no. <laughs> With Reddit, it's kind of uh, community aspects, I suppose. You go on something like the Rick and Morty uh, Reddit, and somebody will ask like a question about Rick and Morty, like, hey, maybe Rick isn't from the dimension that he says he's from. And then everybody just kind of, well, in episode this, in episode that, then this happens and that happens. So I clearly says this. No, but you've done this. And there's like real mature conversations just because somebody goes, oh, I've got an idea here. And all of a sudden the whole community of Rick and Morty obsessives just fill the pages full of uh, fan uh, theories. So much so that I believe um, uh, when the show creators came up with the show, they came up with a backstory that they would never use in the show, but they would use it in the writer's Bible. So the writers would get a, a feel for where Rick had come from, where Morty had come from, where the family had come from. And they had it as a kind of pie-in-the-sky idea that they'd never, uh, ever use. And apparently within three weeks, somebody on Reddit had suggested it. <laughs> they cracked the code that wasn't even a code without knowing it. Uh, yeah. So it it kind of you know breeds that kind of thing, and and I'm sure you know Gravity Falls uh, has a, has a similar uh, fan base, you know, all you know throffing at the mouth, ready for this uh, this extra level to what animation can deliver. I, I the thing is, I I probably wouldn't have that going into an animated show, but I 100% understand the desire to do that when I think of like all my favorite movies. Uh, the ones that really kind of are the absolute top of the heap are the ones that are hugely open to discussion. When you think about the libraries of books that have been written on films like Mulholland Drive and Pulp Fiction, and what did this mean? What what did that represent? Does this tie into a completely different film? Does it, you know? Yeah, it's nice, I think, to get that out of the out of someone else's creative process. You know, because once something's out of the artist's hands, 
and it becomes, in a way, the property of the audience putting aside all legalities and things like that. The people who really have ownership of it are the people who watch it and drink it in and um, the multitude of interpretations and theories and that kind of thing. I'm like, Jesus Christ, lost, <laughs> nearly ruined that. <laughs> yeah. Even though I've not seen Gravity Falls, I can really appreciate where the, on paper at least by reading it, where the creator has gone with it and with his yeah. decision to, you know, leave well enough alone. Even at the end of the day, even if he wasn't that successful doing that, it is still a funny show, which I think is also important. Like, you, you like the characters, you you know, the dialogue is amusing. Mm. The hero doesn't always win, uh, necessarily. It's quite sort of satisfying in that respect. It doesn't feel very twee in Disney at all. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot, there's sort of stuff there, I think, for people more my age. There's one episode that the sort of guest character is this... Um, 16-bit video game street fighter type <laughs> character that's been sort of brought to life he's come out of the video game mm. uh, and the animation on that which is way better than any animation you'd have gotten in a nintendo game around that time but it's also very true to the design style and that kind of thing mm. little things like that lovely little sort of touches it's taking the nature of fantasy television kind of acknowledging that it's slightly ridiculous but not in a mean way. It's just sort of having fun with it. They did a Harryhausen episode as well, didn't they, with uh, the stop-motion skeletons? I, I haven't made it that far, I don't think. Yeah. But uh, that sounds like a great idea, a great use for that uh, premise, certainly. I, I, saw, I saw that because as soon as it happened, everybody sent me a link to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you see that uh, Kirsten Poor did an Adventure Time? Mmm. I only seen uh, stills from it, but that's going to be interesting. That's another great show that's put together. I mean, that's been going on for a while, but it's it's constantly sort of refreshing itself and um, not afraid to add uh, guest directors like uh, David O'Reilly did one. Um, you know, and it's it's kind of like the the opening things of The Simpsons, I suppose. But um, they give him a full episode and uh, tie it in nicely with the with the show, and yeah, so it's nice nice to give people that platform. So back into that sort of world of uh, uh, TV and movies and Annie Awards, was there any sort of other Annie Award winners that struck you as refreshing or worth uh, further investigation? Not really. I mean, it's all it's all uh, Inside Out and yeah. the Mickey Mouse Club, or you know, no, sorry, <laughs> I'm afraid I'm afraid I can't uh, get too excited about the Annie Awards. But the Annie Awards obviously restricted by uh, the fact that it's uh, has to be. American, uh, so it's not yeah. going to it's not going to be up against, uh, you know, best animated feature is not going to be up against. Uh, well, it was up against Peanuts and Shaun the Sheep and Anomalisa. Uh, I'm quite surprised that the uh, best animated feature included Anomalisa because surely that could have qualified as uh, the independent feature. Yeah, I guess so. Or maybe it was released in too many theaters. I don't know. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, because I think you've got to be released in a set amount of theatres, but it made it to the, uh, you know, it made it to be nominated, so... Mm. Oh, yeah, I'd expect you're right. I imagine it's more a matter of how the distribution was handled. Yeah. Um, I had an interesting epistolary relationship with some independent filmmakers. Well, you know, that's pretty much 90% of my correspondence. <laughs> but one in particular was a little bit more Hollywood, I guess, or aspirationally more Hollywood. Mm. And it was interesting noting the the slight change in personality as the film that they had made 
started to gain more and more kudos and then eventually land a, a rather coveted distribution deal within the world of animation. And there was definitely an attitude shift in the filmmaker. There was definitely a bit of a kind of like, okay, well, now it's a real film. Let's, let's not keep calling it an independent film. Mm. It was almost like independent became a dirty word at that point. Which kind of bummed me out, because I think independent films and independent everything, of course there's going to be a lot of shit. But when you get something that is truly independent and the idea is really, really, really strong uh, and it's done so well, then it's one of it's a much more preferable watch for me personally than mm. really any Disney or Pixar or DreamWorks film. Uh, fun as they often are, just from a personal standpoint, I think the indie, you know, short films especially, is just a lot more watchable, I guess, or a lot more to my taste. Absolutely, um, agreed. And so, yeah, I'm glad that there's definitely a sort of independent upswing within animation, or certainly in terms of the creative energy behind a lot of recent films outside of uh, what's going on in the mainstream world. Mm -hmm. Like this Boy in the World film that we talked about last episode, which I think also won a nanny. That's not a film for everyone, but for the people that are into it, it's going to feel very special. It won Best uh, Animated Feature Independent up against The Prophet, The Boy and the Beast, and When Marnie Was There. I don't know. Have you seen The Prophet and Boy in the World? Yeah. Yeah. What would you would you do? You think it's well deserved then against The Prophet? I think I would have put The Prophet uh, above it just because of the the anthology element to it. Yeah. Um, the The Prophet is an overall film. Hmm. Like mm. I was a lot less enamored of the um, the main story through line. Yes. That links the the separate animated segments. I mean, pretty much everyone I've talked to felt the same way but that bearing in mind i talked to people like you and other independent filmmakers like myself and people who are probably way more the audience for like you know a collection of new shorts from the likes of you know nina paley and tom moore and bill plimpton and michelle socha you know those elements of the film are incredibly satisfying mm -hmm. and it wasn't that the rest of the film was incompetently made it was a it was a strong piece of work but perhaps for a different audience perhaps for a younger audience than the uh, animated poems which were more for i think an art house audience for lack of a better term absolutely yeah i i i, I see that but the the thread he said that ran through the prophet with um the uh, slightly odd cell shaded uh cg animation hmm. how can i put this sometimes it worked when it worked it worked perfectly it looked really nice and then sometimes it was just awful and distracting it looked like the the Tetley T folk that are on the telly advertisements at the moment. It looked really bad. Mm. And even more, which didn't help it, was that there was a part in the, the, the film which uh, had sheep in it. And these sheep were 2D animated mm. amongst these CG characters. And their 2D animation was beautiful. And yeah. it kind of made you think and wonder, well, why didn't you just do them all in 2D? If you're trying to go for 2D using CG, just use 2D. Because the chap who did it, he was like uh, the guy who did the Lion King, right? Yeah, Roger Ellis. Maybe he wanted to do something CG, but I would probably assume with the background, with that sort of feather in your cap, 2D animation, you know, is probably something you might want to, you know, keep alive. And maybe that was something that he, he wanted more of, and maybe in some respects it's an easier sell if it's CG nowadays. Yeah, maybe. In terms of distribution, you know, because I know that the distribution and the people involved, like Salma Hayek and stuff like that, that definitely upped its visibility. 
maybe that alongside a whole bunch of other similar kind of factors are at play during the development stage of a film like this. Mm. How do we make this as appealing as possible? So that, that's a, just a sort of theory that maybe it was probably intended as a 2D feature and then the cell shading approach was a compromise. Mm. I may be 100% wrong. So going back to what I was just saying about the, um, the independent spirit of animation and just how, um, well, just how much it enables us to really kind of follow through on things if we actually have that kind of drive and determination. I swear there must be something in the water in New York because all of the major sort of independent animated features that have been pretty much done by like individuals Mm. or like people with very, very small teams, it's always people from New York or people who happen to be in New York at the time. And it's something we talk about in a little bit uh, in this interview with Elliot Cowan, who is presently based in, I think, Queens. And he's from Australia. He worked in England for a while, and he's in New York at the moment. And during his sort of time there, he's made this feature film that comes from, I think, a children's book idea that he had had, which then became a series of webisodes. And then eventually, after enough people sort of paid attention to the webisodes, uh, it became this feature film. It's called The Stressful Adventures of Boxhead and Roundhead. And um, it does sort of join that pantheon of people like, uh, you know, Bill Plimpton. I mean, Bill Plimpton's sort of exceptional because he knocks out feature films. Like every few years, he'll have a new one. Like he's, so, he's sort of like beyond comprehension in a way, like how you have that amount of time and that amount of dedication. But then other people who have, you know, done one or two or, you know, just one that's really sort of striking. Sidney Bauman, of course, did Rocks in My Pockets. Uh, Nina Paley pretty much did her film Cita Sings the Blues. I think she's doing another one at the moment. Don Hertzfeld, we were talking about last episode with uh, It's Such a Beautiful Day, putting the film together in a kind of chapter-by-chapter approach. So it's sort of, it's very, very encouraging to see people have that relationship with the film for so long. I also quite enjoy his attitudes about the film as he'll go into it in a minute. You know, it's not always a bed of roses. Mm. I, de- I think that it's it's a more honest sort of responses. Like when you look back at stuff that we do, some days you'll feel very proud. And then some days you'll think, oh, is that really worth the time? And it really does sort of depend on a mood, uh, general sort of disposition, the uh, response a film is getting, mm. or, you know, a piece of music or a, a piece of art or any kind of venture that has a public audience that can give you feedback on it or that you can be awarded for, you know, your attitude to it, I think will be hugely influenced by how well it does. Again, a bit like this person I mentioned before, whose film was kind of like this fun project they were involved with for a while until it got major distribution. And then it was like, this is the thing. This is my, yeah. this is what I'm going to wear around my neck now. It's a bit more territorial about something, perhaps because it's, Oh, well, it, it, its perceived value has as, uh, increased. Yeah, the stock went up, certainly. So Boxhead and Roundhead, it's not a film that I think, you know, has been in front of the major award juries and that kind of thing. But it's done the rounds at festivals. I've seen lots of really positive responses about it. I think it's really admirable in terms of, you know, how much time and effort went into it. It's going to be screened in the UK this month. So uh, I thought it would be apropos to have Mr. Elliot Cowan uh, talking a little bit more about it and... Uh, his career path and how it all came to be. So uh, let's hear from Elliot Cowan, shall we? Let's. I'm from Melbourne, Australia. My uh, folks are from the UK, as it happens. Uh, I always, like many of us, have always been interested in animation. Even from a very young age, I was very interested in animation. I never really understood how it worked until I was a lot older. 
Like I knew there were lots of drawings, but I didn't get that they were photographed one at a time. <laughs> it took me a very long time to understand that. I remember asking my dad once, and he uh, invented a machine in his head that basically uh, took all the drawings and flipped them for you when they filmed that. That was my dad's explanation. He says he doesn't remember that, but he does. Uh, at the time, when I went to art school, there weren't really, I mean, in Melbourne, there weren't really a lot of places to study animation. There were one or two. One of them was a, a class at uh, the Victorian College of the Arts, which only admitted, I think, like six or eight students a year. And uh, I got into that, and that was the first, first time I'd ever done really any real actual animation. That was probably the year or two before digital really kicked in because we shot I think we might have been the last year to shoot on film and so uh, I um, I graduated from there and then I moved to Tasmania for 11 years where I worked for local TV mostly making um, hundreds of crappy TV commercials but also some animation and then eventually I um, realized well I, I need to move on probably from this and I did and I moved to London for about 18 months where I worked with uh, Uli Meyer almost entirely for that entire time and then I met my lovely wife, who's from Queens, and uh, ended up in New York, where I worked for Sesame and uh, whoever else wants to pay me. I'm like, who's got the money? I've done a bit of bit of something for everyone, really. And I do a lot of teaching, which I kind of like. What kind of stuff did you get up to at Uli Meyer? Most of what I was doing for Uli was... You may have heard of the animated feature he was working on called Monster Mania. It was kind of a... Hammer horror-ish kind of Python-y kind of animated feature. And like so many animated features, it was kind of derailed and never never came about. But I was on that for most of the time I was there, about 18 months, maybe two years, storyboarding almost entirely, lots and lots of gags. If I had a role on it, it was, it was a story role, really. So at what point did that kind of itch to do your own films and shorts kind of rear its head? I had always had wanted to, but at the time... For a long time, if you wanted to make a short, of course, you had to go and get a hole punch in paper and find somewhere to shoot it and all that sort of business. And all of a sudden, there was the opportunity, because you had a laptop and the software, to do it yourself. So I, um, I took advantage of the time, my downtime in London, because I wasn't working full time, and just started making shorts out of these boxhead and roundhead cartoons that I had designed originally as a book package that no one wanted to publish. But I, I was not finished with them, so I, um, I persisted with them, and I started making shorts, and I started getting some festival love. And I think I made about nine, I think it is. I always forget if it's nine or ten. And then the opportunity came to make the feature, and I, um, and I took it, and I made it. <laughs> mm -hmm. So how did that opportunity present itself? It's a monumentally uninteresting story, but I will tell you the story. Okay. Uh, I had made my shorts, and I put them all online, and a, and, a, and a chap in uh, in L.A., a producer, called me and said, what uh, what are you doing with these box and around head characters? And I said, uh, I don't know why, because I spent a long time working in TV, so I'm very leery of anyone calling themselves a producer or anyone corporate in any way. So I was like, why? And he's like, well, you know, because I think there's some potential for them to go places. What do you want to do? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Maybe I'd like to do a feature one day. And he's like, oh, well, let me know... Um, let me know what you want to do. So I went away and I had to think and I, I wrote a script and about a year later after a couple of drafts I went back to him and I said, well, um, 
here's a script that I wrote, but no one in America is going to give you money for this thing. No one is going to give you any money to make this film. It's too kind of weird and strange, and it's like an original property, so no one's going to give you any money for this. And he said, no, no, we'll find someone. And about a year later, he came back to me and said, no one in America is going to give me money for this. So I told you that. And he said, but the Roman- I have some Romanians who will. And I said, oh, yeah. So basically, the, the Boxer Roundhead feature was funded by the Romanian government, their Office of Film and Television. They gave me a small amount of money. Their budget says they gave me 180 grand, but they did not. They gave me 80. <laughs> How exactly does that work for them? Like, what's because any sort of a funding body will have a kind of motivation what they'll get out of it. Um, do they have a certain ownership of the film? They have distribution rights in Romania, but that is it. What they get out of it, I'm not sure. But they were completely hands-off. They really did not care what I made. I, I worked very hard and did some good stuff, but I don't think they would have cared one way or the other. That's my feeling. So as far as what they put up, did that cover the film or did you have to find other sort of streams of funding to keep it going? Well, I took a wage for a... I made it a, a, the whole production was five years, I, but animation production itself was two. So I paid myself for, I think, about a year and a bit maybe a little less actually, not a lot. Uh, we paid two other animators. I got some favors from some friends, stepped in to help. And um, at University of the Arts where I teach, um, my students get a, a free credit if they intern over the summer. So I had a bunch of them helping me out with some stuff there. I basically said, who needs help? Who wants to help me? Whoever wanted to help me, help me. And so that's how it was done. I would do it again for rather more money, but it can be done. <laughs> it can be done for a small amount of money, make something decent and interesting. Were the budgetary concessions, did they play a part in determining the style of the animation or the design? Or To some extent, yes. With more money, though, what would have been different is I had a deadline, a Romanian deadline, so that was November 2014, right? So after I gave it to the Romanians, I actually revisited it quite a bit. I reanimated certain scenes. But there gets a point where it's like you're trying to teach and you're trying to do freelance and you're trying to get the film done at the same time. And at some point you have to have to say, okay, the film ends now. This is where it's finished and I have to start putting it out there. So it would have been different if I had more money because then I wouldn't have been the one trying to do everything and the one who's trying to get to festivals and the one who's trying to make um, packages for festivals and posters and all that sort of stuff. That's the thing you realise when you don't have money, that's the stuff that falls by the wayside. All the stuff that ends up being quite important, like staying on top of festivals, uh, making sure that there's no little glitches throughout, all that sort of stuff is the stuff that goes by the wayside when you have no money. And the fact that you are the one doing everything, that's the hardest part. You are doing everything. And and eventually you get sick of doing it, so of course it doesn't help the film that you can't be bothered filling out more paperwork for more festivals, for example. I guess you'd be in a pretty unique position in the sense that you'd be able to have a complete sort of breakdown of all the things that are required when it comes to the distribution of a film and getting it seen and the realities of that. I think so. I think so. I think the more money you have, the better. Mm. Um, We have had quite a lot of interest from distributors, but I have not liked anything that we've been offered. I think that what I'm probably going to do is put it online for free, reasonably soon actually, because I just feel, I don't know, I just feel that I would rather, I mean, it, it didn't cost me money, right? It's not like I put millions of dollars of my own money into it. So I would rather, I, I think I'd rather be happier 
putting it online where everyone can see it who wants to see it than going through some miserable distribution deal that keeps it away from people who might not be able to want to pay $4, $3, whatever to see it on iTunes or whatever the hell. That's, that's, that's my feeling. And I feel I'd, I'd rather it was there for people to look at than to be in some sort of corporate hands, having some funds sort of uh, sifted off the top. It becomes a kind of a secret film, I think, when you do that. People don't get to see it in the same way, especially independent animation, which is like uh, sometimes unless you're a film person or an animation person, you don't go looking for it. And if it's if it's hidden away behind a wall of some kind, you're not even going to think it's there. So I, I think that I think that I'm going to put it online for free for all who want to see. I think that's my thinking. Going back to the production, I guess, or perhaps the origin of um, the characters. Um, yeah. So it was in a, it was a comic originally. Um, uh, well, actually, picture picture book actually picture okay. book I was trying to sell. Yes. Did they have the same sort of character dynamic back then? Not exactly the same, but similar. They don't speak in the shorts, although in the later shorts they do what I call indie speak, which is like in independent animation. If you don't want to record dialogue, you go. They have that. They actually spoke to each other in the books that I had written. But at the time, I had no facility to record dialogue, so I just kind of abandoned it. They were influenced by um, Winnie the Pooh and A.A. Milne. If you, if you pay attention, you'll probably hear a little of it in the dialogue there. Those conversations that Pooh and Piglet have, I've, uh, I don't want to say I've borrowed from it, but I've definitely been influenced by those. But originally, they were kind of like two very frightened characters that uh, lived in this world where everybody hates them. But they did develop over time, and the one thing that I've mentioned this before is that I was always trying very hard to avoid is when you have a bossy character and you have a simple character, everything falls into being um, Ren and Stimpy. And I tried very hard to make sure that it was not that relationship, that they were, uh, they were very close and that they needed each other and that it was a genuine friendship, not this kind of crazy, angry, slash dum-dum situation. There's sort of a mix of styles sort of on display. There's some very kind of retro cartoon modern design work and then the main characters mm-hmm. um, are sort of you know entities unto themselves in terms of yeah. the way they move and stuff like that was that sort of an ever-present thing in that universe uh no no i just i i figured it was going to happen because for example amanda bautista who animated the boss character lars mm-hmm. i knew i know she has got this very fluid slippy style that i knew she would put onto that and lila who did mr urso uh, she did the most work, and I, I, I had a feeling she was going to go pretty straightforward and flash-based, which kind of gave him kind of a little more of a, a UPA kind of feel. That wasn't on purpose, but, I mean, you got 80 grand to make. You, you, can't, you have to come to terms with the fact you're not going to make Toy Story 3. It's not going to be this thing here. It's going to be this thing here. It's going to be this other thing. That's, that's something that's important to keep in mind. And I, 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 ultimately, it's, it's the, the film that matters, how it all comes together. I don't think anyone except animation people particularly care if this character is designed differently from that character. I also had, you know, Neil Ross? Um, Cameron Ross is a production designer. He did a lot of my backgrounds there, and I think that his um, sexy backgrounds really did make the rest of them look rather, <laughs> rather sexier than I had intended, so that, that was a help too. <laughs> he did the backgrounds for the jungle and the city, and so that kind of like is the majority of the film, and that kind of wrapped it up, I think. I guess it also that sort of brings me to like the point of use of colour in the film, and I think the, the previous shorts, they had all been black and white. Is that right? Yep, that's exactly right. 
was he sort of responsible for the color component of it or was that yeah that was pretty much all neil the other issue that i had is the shorts are easy to design because they all take place in the one space but i knew they were going to go to the city and they're the characters are black and i knew that i was going to struggle to make the whole thing black and white and have the characters on screen at the same time without doing something radical and i didn't know what that was so uh neil i mean neil designed all that stuff and that's that's his you look at them and you know they're Neils. He gave me about five city backgrounds and they're just reused over and over and over again. I just kind of tweaked the the uh, the hue and the saturation in Photoshop. It works w rather better than anyone notices. No one notices there's only, I think, three or four backgrounds there. Do you prefer them sort of in a color world? I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, I'm always one to move on. I don't think that, I, I don't like sticking with conventions just because you've done it all one way. You should have to do it that way. It's tends to be what we like to do as animators, but I don't, didn't feel tied to it. I liked them in the color world. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Especially after years of... I mean, I black and white is my go-to. I, I love black and white work. I turn to black and white. I, I don't want to say I prefer it, but it's my I, I relate to it and I get it. So it's nice to have them in a, in a space that isn't my immediate thought in my head. During production, were you showing it to people as it was coming together for feedback? or A little bit, a little bit. The problem that I was having was that I would put together a sequence and I would ask someone to look at it and I would say, now look, it's not finished, there's some missing animation, the dialogue's a little screwy and the audio's out. Do you want to have a look at it? And they'd say yes. And then they, and then they would say, oh yeah, look, uh, the audio's a little crappy, the dialogue's out and it doesn't seem to be edited properly. I'm like, yeah, I told you that, I get that. So what I found was that I only had a very few people who were giving me the feedback I wanted. I didn't need them to tell me it was great. I just needed it to make sense. And mostly when I was showing people, they were coming back with being critical of exactly the things that I told them were wrong with it. We had one big screening in New York at the beginning of 2014, and I immediately cut out maybe four minutes of mostly... The film was full of these fades to black throughout, and then... I never really realized how much was in there. It was just, there was so many fades to black. It was like a, an endless uh, Roadrunner cartoon, you know? <laughs> and I chopped a lot of those out and trimmed a lot of stuff. So I took it from, I think, an hour 17 to an hour 11, I think it was. So uh, that was the only big screening we had. And so you feel like the edited version presumably then plays a lot better? Yes, it does. The Romanian version is, is the longer version. The Romanian version is longer with quite terrible audio <laughs> and it has got i would say about two minutes of old animation that i ended up redoing so i, I and, and i only recently found out that i was never sure even if romanians it played in theaters there for two months i have and i never knew whether they subtitled it or redubbed it i had no idea what they did i recently found out that it was um subtitled i think i think just sort of technically speaking what was the main software that you ended up using Boxhead and Roundhead themselves are animated in After Effects using a very uh, extremely time-consuming uh, uh, method of animating masks, basically. Uh, and all the other characters were done in Toon Boom and, After and Flash. Flash, Flash. With lots of Photoshop and lots of After Effects compositing. And your experience on working on, on various sort of projects for TV and whatnot over the years... What would you say would be the main ways that producing this film deviated from, say, a sort of standard production pipeline? I don't think it deviated a lot at all, other than um, 
Ideally, in animation, I think that there is an awful lot to be said for having all of the people working on the film in the same space. Uh, something is lost when you do not have that, and that is the only difference, is that it, I was done in my apartment in Queens and in desks in Philadelphia and in New Jersey and uh, Camden and wherever else we could find people to work on it. That's that's the only real major difference with the production. But generally speaking, you know, I've cut like thousands of commercials. I've directed a bunch of commercials. I, I treated it very similarly, which is, you know, we've got a, a small amount of time and a small amount of money. What is the uh, what is the cleanest route from A to Z? <laughs> Something again that I sort of picked up is that a lot of the independents who are making actual sort of feature length projects, they all seem to be from New York, or at least it's produced during their time in New York. New York is a very. F there is often a built in audience for a lot of what you're doing mm -hmm. and a built in enthusiasm for what you're doing because Americans generally are, uh, are more of a. Uh, they're more enthusiastic peoples. <laughs> So, for example, Bill Plimpton is a character who's known in New York. So if he's making something in New York, then he's got a kind of built-in audience to some extent, if that makes sense. Signa, um, who is kind of uh, in a similar position. So, plus the animation community in New York, there's no real actual industry in New York. Okay, there, is, there are a number of studios, but there's no real industry. So a lot of us tend to move in the same circles where even though you might be an independent, you still do some commercial work. And even though you're at a, working in a commercial studio, you spend a lot of time going to see independent animation, if that makes sense. And I have a feeling that may have something to do with it. It's possibly also a little competitive. So it's a, it's a notch. It's a feather in your cap. I made a future. And New Yorkers are a competitive bunch, so that might have something to do with it as well. In the length of this sort of story for your characters, I mean, do you feel like the length of the film is, would that have been the only way to tell that particular story, do you think, or would it have worked as something more short form? Um, I think that if I had brutalized it, I could have made a, I could have made a, a version of it that was, say, like 23 minutes for TV. I probably could have. I would have lost a lot of stuff. Um, there's a B plot. And uh, and the C plot that I probably would have lost. I think I could have done it, but you know, it was it was it was a longer story. It wasn't going to comfortably be a five minute short. It wasn't comfortably going to be a fifteen minute short either. Uh, originally, we'd planned it to be an hour and a half, and then I realized it doesn't need to be an hour and a half. It's an hour and eleven minutes, which I think is uh, a good length for a, a small, somewhat demanding animated feature. But I, I think it's a good length. Could it be shorter? Mm, it could be a little shorter, I think, if I wanted to really be honest. But I think it's good. I mean, overall, do you feel like it was a, a good exercise to do? It depends on what time of the day you catch me. <laughs> sometimes I hate it so much and I'm like, why did I spend all this time on this thing? I hate it so much. And then, uh, and then I get like another five festival rejections. I'm like, oh, God, kill me. This is just unbearable. And then it'll get into a festival and I get a bunch of emails. And it's like, we love this film. It's great. Mm. And I'm like, yay, I'm so talented and clever. I feel good about myself now. I spend all this time on this film. And then, you know, you try and get some enthusiasm from it from folks and you don't get a lot. I'm like, oh, God, I'm going to kill myself. And then I get an email from some kid who saw it in Mississippi. And I'm like, yay, the kid saw it in Mississippi. I'm so happy. <laughs> Cool. So, yeah, you mentioned the upcoming project. Is there a sort of timeline for that? I want to get, I'm, well, I'm starting this new short called Oh Shit, and I think that I want to get it done by, I want to get all my legwork done by um, the end of December, if possible. 
or maybe mid-January so I can give it to some nice person to colour for me because um, I get an intern on this one. It's very exciting for me. <laughs> uh, so that, that I want to get that done for entry to Ottawa and, uh, and the usual. So that's what I'm going to do next. I hope to get it done in time. I'm just waiting for my music to arrive because it's going to be based around music. That was Elliot Cowan, director of The Stressful Adventures of Boxhead and Roundhead, and that will be screening here in the UK on Saturday the 13th of February, 3pm, as part of Animex. So uh, you can find out more at animex.teeS.ac.uk. And uh, to find out more about the work of Elliot Cowan, visit elliotelliotelliot.com. That sounds like the perfect Valentine's Day date. Mm-hmm. That's not me asking you. Have you seen much of these, um, well, I, I'm sure you will, of these initiatives for new animated shows that Nickelodeon and CBBC have been doing? We've, of course, talked about them on the website. But uh, as I'm kind of going through stuff, I'd be interested in your take on them. Yeah. Perhaps more the CBBC stuff, because that's kind of closer to home. But well, we have the uh, we have the list here of um, winning submissions. So these, I guess, are not that fully formed. From what I remember of the uh, submission criteria... They could be like scribbled on a napkin almost. Yes. Um, yeah. Like they weren't after full series Bibles. So they got one, one, two, three, four. It's so eight. They got eight that are going to be developed. It's anime eight, Ben. I, it's anime. You know eight. what? I should have been able to work that out without <laughs> counting. I should have been able to count to eight without tapping the screen as well. But this is what happens when you get old. <laughs> me. <laughs> So they've whittled down the submissions to, uh, and these eight uh, winners are now going to be, well, they're going to go through to the pilot stage, which is quite uh, interesting, exciting. Uh, I've seen a few variations on this type of initiative, Mm. soliciting ideas and then developing them further. Uh, We talked to Jesse from Wildseed about it uh, probably about a year and a bit ago about developing online content, trying to find the next sort of big like web animation, which, um, you know, has is, is got to be a tricky process. And Nickelodeon have been doing it. And position that we're in, I've seen some of the stuff that kind of was developed to an extent and not necessarily made it through. And I do think it's a good way of getting people to you know, come up with ideas and, you know, really kind of get off their ass. Mm. I, I did note that Nickelodeon's scheme... Got a bit of flack on Cartoon Brew, yeah, as like perhaps a bit sort of desperate. But I kind of I don't know if I agree with that one hundred percent. I agree with it so much as I've seen catastrophic results with live action sitcoms that have been based on the same initiative, like basically go to the public for ideas. Mm. I mean, have you seen some of the like you know audience written BBC Three sitcoms? It's it can sometimes get a little bit kind of hairy. And I think animation, there's a little more margin for experimentation and a little more margin for error. Certainly if, you know, they're targeted to the younger audiences, you know, that way they don't all have to be about families. I think, yes, I will absolutely agree there. But uh, younger audiences, there's, there's a much wider playing field. As you say, there's no restrictions to making it about, about families, about just families. But there's also a, a more discerning audience. You can't get away with as much uh, when you're writing for children. As viewers, they will notice everything. And if they don't like it, they will take an absolute adverse reaction to it and they won't give it a second chance. Like me and you, we'll torture ourselves through a season of a show we don't like, hoping that it will get better. Whereas a kid will be like, no, I'm going to go play with my toys. And it's 
Yeah. You know, it, it, oh, I'm going to go play on my bike now. It's as simple as that. So, uh, in a way, they really have to put a lot more effort into considerations to, as to what it is they're actually going to throw money at. Because although we're saying they've got, you know, eight shows here and they're going to be forwarded to the um, pilot stage uh, in April 2016, I think it says, that's a lot, that represents a lot of money. It certainly has to be some expertise when it comes to uh, considering which shows go through. Well, it has some promise, it looks like. And time will tell, Ben. And, you know, whether or not it proves to be the right approach, at least it's something that gets people's ideas. Well, someone else who commented on the cartoon brew thing mentioned uh, that what a cartoon, the old series, that brought some of the best shows of that sort of era into life. Was that the uh, Cartoon Network one? Yeah. Yeah. It's where like stuff like Powerpuff Girls and Johnny Bravo came from. Cow and Chicken and uh, Dexter's yeah. Lab. And... Yeah, look where those those guys are now. So yeah, maybe history will repeat itself. As far as like the culture of TV animation goes, it sort of brings to mind the one time I managed to make it to the Bradford Festival before it sort of went kaput. And being sort of struck by what a lovely venue the National Media Museum was, I, I forget if the the what they had on display was part of that festival or if they have a kind of like if they had an all year round sort of animation display. But certainly. What I saw was a great sort of preservation of like animation, TV culture, puppets and sets and the like. Sure, it's it's a permanent exhibition there. The um, mm. the animation material, you know, sets, props, old stuff such as zoetropes and praxinoscopes and all the stuff right the way through animation history. And uh, they've got the set to the uh, the wrong trousers, the museum set, uh, one of the the things that survived the Bristol fire from uh, ten years ago, and it's a real nice. Um, a nice location. If anyone's got a chance to go to Bradford and see this exhibition, you know, they should definitely go there and get a flavour for it all. There's, uh, you know, like I say, sets, cells, storyboards, sketches. These are the kind of items that don't really come to much consideration when it comes to uh, preserving animation heritage. We kind of have a uh, an idea that when we're preserving animation, we're preserving the moving image, which is something that is done extensively by the likes of the BFI. We've got a massive animation collection which covers everything from, you know, the very earliest days of, of UK animation, you know, up until the time of recording, Ben. Uh, you know, and they'll continue collecting animation and, and preserving its uh, its moving image legacy. But my own studies, my own, um, uh, my own work that I've been doing uh, PhD-wise has been studying the uh, preservation of animation materials. So it came as a bit of a shock when the uh, the, the National Media Museum announced that uh, 400,000 pieces of their uh, photographic collection were being moved from the National Media Museum in Bradford, where they've been since 2003, move into the V&A in London. And obviously this was met with uh, outrage from the public uh, and, uh, and, and politicians, uh, councillors, uh, called it an act of cultural rape, um, and a petition was launched, uh, which has gathered thousands, of, tens of thousands of signatures. And uh, MP Ju- uh, Judith Cummins, uh, who's the Bradford MP, she's uh, appealed to the Culture Secretary Ed Vasey uh, directly um, through through another p- petition. You might be asking, what's this got to do with animation? And it kind of it puts me. And I don't know if it puts you at unease as well, Ben. That the fact that the reason that this has been moved from Bradford is because it doesn't fit the uh, government's uh, STEM initiative, and STEM standing for Science, Technology, Engineering, 
and mathematics. So the government has an agenda to make sure that the Science Museums Group, which the National Media Museum is a part of, uh, you know, adheres to that uh, particular agenda. And uh, that means that the uh, photographic collection, being a predominantly artistic piece of work, gets moved elsewhere, gets moved to London. Uh, so people of Bradford uh, can no longer uh, enjoy it. It's kind of upsetting because it kind of, when it first happened, I was, it made me nervous. It made me nervous that uh, animation would go the same route because animation, it's, it's a science, but it's also an art and that the museum may uh, take the steps to move its animation collection elsewhere. And the problem being that there's no real location that would take on animation production materials. As we said, places will take on the moving image, but they won't actually take on the cells, the scripts, the storyboards, the sets, the puppets, the things that actually make the tangible aspect of animation. Um, I'm sure places do take it, special collections at the BFI, for example, but there's no real location. These photographs needed to go begging. There was a place ready to take it. If anyone wanted to, to get rid of any other materials, there would be other places ready to take it. AV, for example, audiovisual materials. But for animation, there's no animation museum in the UK. Now, the Media Museum, I will say, have sent me a, a statement directly because I, 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 I bugged them, Ben. I wouldn't. <laughs> uh, we retain three million items in our collections of photography, cinematography and television including many related to animation and they've assured me that animation sits within their cinematography collection which is uh, not viewed as art it's viewed as a science so it's safe for the time being but it kind of it put the fear up me slightly ben mm -hmm. but i'm going to be very interested with that i'm going to be because it's a great place you know a great opportunity to celebrate our uk animation legacy and heritage through uh, festivals as well I'd be interested to hear what other people have to say on that because I think that there are, I think you're, you're on point. I think that there could be some quite serious ramifications of this. And also the point of like, yeah, where would it go if circumstances changed? If the safety of these materials, if the circumstances of that changed over time, one would hope that there would be a place for them. There's no real communication between uh, collections. Let's say, for example, um, an elderly animator were to die. And no one knows that back in the 1960s, he was he worked on Yellow Submarine. He's got all these cells in his attic. The family are clear in the attic. And they what do they do with all these animation cells? They don't know where to send them all. You know, they probably just throw them in the bin and there you go. There's our heritage thrown away. Luckily, when uh, Harold Whitaker died a couple of years ago, he was in correspondence with um, Jess Stewart at the BFI. So the BFI collected his stuff and... That's saved, that's preserved, but, you know, there's no kind of amnesty for this stuff. Yeah. I don't have the answer, alas. Because <laughs> I, I remember the writing was sort of on the wall a few years back that um, things were a little in jeopardy. And we discussed, you know, that at the time and then sort of since when Bradford itself, the Bradford Festival, came to an end. It's not like we're shouting in a completely empty room. You know, I know that obviously by the nature of what we do, that there are people who are very passionate about this kind of thing. But it's not, you know, as populated a room as, um, you know, certain other areas of film and television and that kind of thing. Mm. You know, if an Only Way is Essex exhibition closed down, there'd be, you know, chaos on the streets. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's just kind of sad. 
it's not been made, I think, the, the focus of my sort of work and studies in the same way as it has with yourself. But certainly the culture of animation and the history of animation is a big part of what I like about it. I do recall when um, Adam Elliott was talking about his, uh, <laughs> his habit of, whenever he finishes a film, to set all the sets and puppets aflame. <laughs> in a big dump. I thought your head was going to explode. <laughs> I've had a go at him a few times for that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's if that's the way he wants to do it, then we all have to. If that's what we have to do, that's you know, that's our that's our thing. So yeah, to reiterate what we were saying at the end of the last podcast, I would be great to hear more from like the the swiggly listeners out there. See what you think about this, or anything else that sort of comes to mind that's happening in the in the industry at large. But certainly, it's. Uh, it strikes me as something of a conversation starter. Well, hopefully, yeah. it's, it's going to be a riot starter, Ben. You know, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to start the damn revolution. You are, yeah, absolutely. You need to protect the slight threat that's at the tiny possibility of animation being um, badly done to, which we'll have none of on this podcast, Ben, I'll tell you that. We will be its defenders. Yes, absolutely. But yeah, speaking of, of correspondence, we've, we've had a few uh, bits and bobs through. So you might remember the last podcast uh, we started with quite a sour note, actually. Everyone, every, it seemed that everyone was dropping around as like flies. He said jovially. Um, we got a, a tweet from Niall Plum, at Niall Plum. Just started the latest podcast and found out Terry Wogan died. I feel there's a curse. <laughs> and we, I don't think we, we, we can be implicated within that death. <laughs> there have been some other sort of, you know, people have passed on. Uh, recently, I think I, I read today the chapter wrote Monsters Inc. That's right. Yeah, that was uh, that was sad news. Um, and Joe Alasky, the voice actor who um, took the reins of quite a few of the Looney Tunes characters in the post Mel Blanc era. Yeah, I was particularly upset with that. That's, that's another we were talking about shows earlier on. Duck Dodgers when he did Duck, Duck Dodgers. I remember watching that and thinking, who's this guy? It's the, one of the one of the few opportunities I've taken when it's come to hearing somebody's voice work and thinking, who is that guy? He's doing such an amazing job of Daffy Duck. I need to find out who this guy is. Mm. And then I saw him and obviously knew who he was and, and, and saw that he did absolutely loads. The baton was handed from Mel Blanc to him uh, in Who Framed Roger Rabbit because Mel Blanc did the sort of the softer, quieter characters, whereas uh, he was at an age where Yosemite Sam wasn't quite, uh, he couldn't quite reach the sort of gnarly, growly um, volume and so he passed it on to Joe to do. Mm. So uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, the the writer that you 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 mentioned, uh, the writer of uh, Monsters Inc. and Big Hero Six, Dan uh, Gerson, who's um, sadly passed away as well. It's uh, it's a sad end uh, to the to the podcast. We're going to lighten the mood. Absolutely. Should we start a song and dance? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they will be remembered fondly. Absolutely. And what legacies they leave? Um, Terry Wogan, I don't know. Were you a fan of uh, Stop It and Tidy Up? I don't think I really watched it, but I, I am aware of it. And you know, it's, it's... I, I watch it fondly, but I watch it fondly because it used to scare the living shit out of me. <laughs> you know what? I think that's how I heard of it. I think that you, you told me that it used to scare you yeah. in another podcast. And so I, I looked it up then because so I would have only seen it a couple of years ago. Yeah. A legacy of, you know, scaring children. He's all right in my book. Yes. I can only hope to be able to have the same thing on my gravestone. As can we all, Ben, I'm sure. 
So until next time, thanks again to our guest, Elliot Cowan. Visit him online at elliotelliotelliot.com. And if you're nearby, be sure to check out his film, The Stressful Adventures of Boxhead and Roundhead, this Saturday, February 13th, at the Middlesbrough Institute of Modern Art as part of the Animex Festival. You can visit animex.net for more info. You can follow Elliot on Twitter at BoxNRoundhead. And while you're following people, why not follow my good self at Ben L. Mitchell and Steve is at Mr. Underscore S. Underscore Henderson. If anyone wants to get in touch uh, with the podcast, it'd be nice to read out some correspondence. As Ben said, uh, you can get in touch Steve at squiggly.co.uk or Ben at squiggly.co.uk. So if you want to talk about the Annies or awards or death and destruction uh, <laughs> anything uh, about the uh, about the media museum anything you want to get in touch about um, shoot us a line also of course you can always chat with us on twitter at squiggly or facebook.com slash squiggly magazine our main website remains squiggly.com check it out for all the usual features interviews videos reviews etc until we talk at you again happy animating